You're listening to the Dublin Review podcast in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. I'm Angela Flannery. In this episode of the Dublin Review podcast, I'm talking to Sarah Gil Martin about her short story, Bring It Home, which was published in number 81, the winter 2020 issue of the Review. Sarah Gil Martin is a writer from Limerick. Her stories have been listed for the Sean O'Fuelon, New Irish Writing, and Francis McManus Awards. She was the winner of the 2020 Martin Crawford Short Story Award. She received a literature from the Arts Council of Ireland in both 2020 and 2021. Her debut novel, Dinner Party, will be published by Pushkin Press in September 2021. Sarah, thank you for joining me on the Dublin Review podcast. My pleasure. So the story that we're talking about, Bring It Home, was published late last year in the Review, and it was your first contribution to the magazine. Could you tell me where the idea for this story came from, what it's about? Mm-hmm. I started the story in 2018 when I was doing an MFA in UCD. I'd written a good few stories from the female perspective, and I guess I wanted to write something in a man's voice, specifically a man who felt detached from his life and family at a particular moment in time. Uh, so the story takes place in a bookies, which happened quite organically. I was on Camden Street one day, which is three bookies within the space of a block or two. And I saw a man going through slips outside Paddy Power and putting the losers, or what I presume were the losers, into a bin. Uh, It was just a really strong image and it stayed with me. I'm not sure if I made the connection straight away, but when I went back to the story, at some point, the backdrop of my character and the backdrop of that image seemed to align. Mm -hmm. And the character, the main character in the story, Mike, how much did he have in common with the actual physical image of the guy you saw on Francis Street, or sorry, on Camden Street? I guess it was more just that I had I had a setting for him or I had somewhere for him to go because I knew, I knew things about him. I knew his family life. I knew his work situation. I knew stuff about his past, but I was just wondering what he was doing in the present and, and for the action of the story. So I think that's probably where it came into play, less so that, you know, his descriptions or his details certainly wouldn't have resembled the man. I mean, I can't remember them myself. Mm-hmm. And um, Mike in this story, he's a physiotherapist, which struck me as a very unusual um, occupation for a man who appears to have a gambling addiction. Uh, that's just my judgment. I'm sure gamblers come in all shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. But why did you decide that Mike would be a physiotherapist? What's important about his occupation? I think I knew from the beginning uh, that I wanted him to be a health professional. I wasn't sure exactly was it going to be a physiotherapist or, or some other profession within within the health sector. But there's the obvious irony or conflict for me there that, you know, he spends his days helping others, but he doesn't really know how to help himself. And with physiotherapy specifically, it's a very hands on job. So I like that contrast between how he might use his hands for work and then in the bookies and the betting machines, I guess, with their depressing automatic button functions, you know, the ease and simplicity of them, I guess, like press the button, get reward, or, you know, lose all your money. I mean, you can do it with a finger. So I I think there was probably that link going on in my mind as well. And when he looks around at the other men in the bookies, the diehards and... Mm -hmm. uh, the owl fellas that are in there, he looks at them 
you know, so they're addicts and he isn't. And he sort of has a pity for them, even though he's in there with them and he can't move away from the machine. Does Mike think he's superior to them? Is he deluded about himself? Hmm. I mean, that's an interesting one. I don't think so, because I don't think in the story or at this point in his life that he's capable of of feeling superior to them or or maybe even to anybody else. Uh, there might even be a level of envy, I think, uh, in how he views the men, certainly that they can give themselves over to the gambling so easily. And maybe also the fact that they have each other, they come as a pair. Uh, he does see himself as apart from them, though. I think that's right, that he's more of a novice or a visitor to their world or, or, or someone who's passing through. And whether or not that's true or will prove false in the future is beyond the limits of the story in a way. But um, I suppose it's fair to say that uh, the certain warmth that he felt towards them at certain points in the story or from the beginning through the middle of the story, that's lessened or is almost gone by the time we get to the end. And what do you think is driving him to gamble? What, what's, what's making him go into the bookies in this way? Part of it, I think, is to do with distraction. Uh, he's looking for an easy release or a bit of entertainment, you know, kind of things that would be maybe more on the surface when it comes to gambling rather than, you know, deep, dark motivations to get him into the bookies. On the day that the story takes place, he's he's taken a half day off work and he's due to go home to his family and his girls, his twin girls. And that's the plan. But at the same time, he finds himself not doing that and stopping into the bookies, I guess, just for maybe to have a bed or two but suddenly when the story takes place it's evening time and part of the story is kind of him uncovering or figuring out that time has elapsed while he's been in the bookies and not really realizing that until we get close to the end. But he's been there before this isn't the first time that he's been in there and you know there's a part in it where you hear about his wife Dee and him texting her that he's going to be late and she says that's grand um and we don't know whether she knows that he's gambling um he doesn't tell her that he's in the bookies um so does she know what he's doing is she also a bit bored and a bit at a loose end what's what's her story uh in a way her views and feelings are probably again a little bit outside the story but obviously you know, how she feels and what she thinks will impact on Mike. Uh, we know from that text message, actually, so she says grand in it, but there's very little in the text message beyond that, that she's busy, she's preoccupied, and maybe she's a bit careless as well, though not necessarily uncaring. Uh, later on in the story, we learn that she has less time and attention for Mike since having twins, which, you know, is fairly self-explanatory. But I think for him, which is what I'm interested in in the story, it's something more than that. So time has passed. You know, his kids, they're no longer babies. Uh, but while his family, while his wife and the girls seem to have kind of grown up together, there's a sense that he's a little bit stuck in another time or place. I guess in earlier drafts, not the, not, not the finished uh, product that's, a, that's in the Dublin Review, I had some things about his relationship with his father, um, his farming background, but they turned out to be extraneous in the end. And it can be hard, or at least I find it hard to get distance on that as a writer, you know, what, what to leave in, what to leave out. 
but that's where a good editor uh, comes in and can help you. Yeah. Um, yes, that is the challenge with the short story. Isn't it? That you can you can take the reader out of the story and take them off down um, a very very long and winding path, um, and then have to bring them back to the point. So, uh, this was the the first story that you published with the review. How important was it? Um, as would you describe yourself as an early career writer now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my first novel is coming out in September, so I'm definitely an early at an early stage in my career. Uh, it was really important. I think it really helps, uh, you know, to give a little boost in confidence when something gets accepted or when something is liked, and certainly then when you see the 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 story being in print as well. And particularly somewhere like the Dublin Review, it would have um, I, I would have always liked to have been published in it. So you know, it was a really nice boost and it came at a good time as well. And, you know, I loved reading the story. I really enjoyed it. I was really impressed with how much you appeared to know about gambling. And I just thought, <laughs> you know, what kind of background, what, 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 what don't I know about Sarah Gilmartin? Do you come from a so-called horsey background or a gambling background? What kind of research did you have to do to make this story authentic? Because, you know, you do write about horse racing like somebody who's watched quite a few horse races. Uh, yeah, no, not at all growing up. Uh, certainly not. I'm from Limerick and I wouldn't have really had any knowledge or interest in horse racing, but I'm married to a professional gambler. So I guess I'm familiar with some of the territory and terminology because of that. And then just in recent years, my dad has an interest in racing. So I pick up on the odd phrase when I'm home, but in terms of going there to the races myself, not so much. Probably the bones of the research was done uh, in Dublin by me by going into a couple of betting shops and trying to observe what went on there like things like you know what the machines looked like or what the room felt like uh, particularly as a kind of I think I went in once during the day and then um, as it got uh, nearer towards the towards the end of the evening and I was interested in that kind of shift that occurs because there's definitely like a mood or an atmosphere shift or I noticed that there was and it struck me as you know, a betting shop is kind of a liminal space in a way that it's legal and it's socially acceptable and it's totally fine on until it isn't. And I'm interested in those kind of spaces. Okay, there's a couple of things there that I have to pick you up on. My husband <laughs> is a professional gambler, being the first one. Uh, yeah, that's what he what he does. Uh, he's done it for about ten or fifteen years, and it's not necessarily just horses. Um, it, it's all it's all different sports. I'm not hugely um, knowledgeable about the details of it or what goes on in the background, but um, that's his job. So, a kind of mathematical mind working at the odds is the is uh, yeah, that pretty it is? much yeah, yeah okay. and, and and the computer side of it as well a little bit too. Okay. So um, when you were going into, were the casinos or bookies that you were going into, Sarah? Uh, bookies. I live in Dublin 8, so I'm, I live quite close to Camden Street. And back in the day, back before COVID, uh, there's there's three bookies on Camden Street. There's actually a new one um, being set up at the moment, New Ladbrokes. So I don't know if there will be four, but, you know, it's not a very long street. So that's, a, that's quite a lot of bookies uh, for just one fairly short block. And... I'm guessing that you were in a minority as a young woman walking into a bookies. How, how was that experience? How you re, how were you received? Uh, fine. Uh, I think the clientele was mainly, it was mainly male and a little bit older. Uh, so 
uh, it was it was fine. Maybe I got a few looks. Uh, bizarrely, most of the assistants who would work behind the counter, they're younger and female. So there was that kind of contrast um, when I went into the bookies of, between the clientele and then the staff. And and you had to play the um, the electronic GGs. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, not too often because I didn't, I mean, in a way, I did want a sense of what the bookies were like and what the machines were like, technically speaking. But I didn't want things to be too definite either because, you know, if that's the case, if they're fixed, you can kind of only write them one way. So I wanted a an outline or a sketch, I guess, as opposed to it all kind of coloured in. Okay, uh, if I could just bring you back to the story itself. Um, there's no resolution at the end of this story. And um, I like short stories like that because I like to wonder afterwards to stay with the character and kind of think, well, what happens to that person? And with Mike, what I was wondering was at the end, he encounters a homeless girl. And um, are we supposed to think that his encounter with her and just the couple of you know the little back and forth he has with her that it changes him in some way does he get up the next day and see things differently or do you imagine that he he does it all again um this story it it, it had a few different endings and ultimately as often seems to be the case for me I ended up going back to the first idea and then not going with it fully but writing a variation on that but I wouldn't have gotten there without writing the other ones in between if you know what I mean I didn't want there to be a set resolution and it does there, you know, there is no sense of resolution at the end. It's just an action, something that he does. I don't think that Mike knows himself yet what tomorrow is going to bring, but there's a sense, I think that he's been jolted a little from his everyday life or from his own perspective or even from inside his own head. Uh, Alice Munro says that there should be a queer bright moment in every story. That is somehow what the story is about. And I mean, it doesn't have to be the ending, but for me, I guess the ending of Bring It Home does have that strangeness of an extraordinary moment in an ordinary life where the brain is maybe forced to stop and reset itself just for a second. And maybe that resetting just goes back to what it was doing or thinking moments before, but sometimes it doesn't. And then if it doesn't, then I guess maybe there's a change. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today, Sarah, about the story. And now here's Sarah Gilmartin reading her story, Bring It Home, which was published in number 81, the winter 2020 issue of the Dublin Review. One by one, the other punters clicked the door release and left, an icy blast each time. Mike imagined the sky over Rath Mines, dark now and safer. As the betting machine continued her countdown, he scanned the pages on the notice board, the smudged print that were no, new, no use to anyone now. His bum ached from the stool, its hard leather cover split down the middle. He wondered who had stuck their fingers into the foam and clawed out the chunks. Standing up, he cocked a leg behind him, yanking his ankle back until the heel of his runner touched his hip bone. The boss in his first physio job had called it the super stretch and Mike still used it now, years later, with his own clients. He counted to 30 before switching legs, then did a set of squats to get the blood flowing, ignoring the regulars on the machines near the door, who broke from their efforts to consider him. At this hour, only the diehards were left, eyes goggling the screens. 
If they sold those little bottles of artificial tears at the counter, they'd make a killing. He had a sudden urge to take one of the green pens from the ledge and scratch his retinas. What was he even doing here? He'd blocked off the afternoon to go home to Dee and the girls. It was supposed to be a surprise. Well, surprise. He wasn't there. Because he was here. For some unknown reason, he was still here. Mike looked at the diehards and told himself it was okay. He was okay. He'd only been in a handful of times. Five or six at most. Usually with a tip-off from a client. He liked it here during the daytime. The company, the cheering, the whispered knowledge. But it was bleak in the evening. He texted Dee hours ago to say he was going for pints after work. Grand, she'd replied, and a Z after it, which he hoped was a kiss. He didn't like that his lie had landed so easily. Sometimes it seemed to him that if he disappeared tomorrow, they'd all be grand. Grand Z. Turning the pockets of his work tracksuit inside out, he sifted through the crumpled slips until he found a tissue. The stale air was killing his sinuses. One more race and he was gone. He dropped the scraps of paper by the mess at the foot of the bin. The old chrome ashtray was full of slips and receipts and a big lump of chewing gum that looked like a dead brain. He tried to imagine this narrow, low-ceilinged room back in the day when the lads stayed inside for their smokes. His right foot itched, spreading up his shin. He did a single leg deadlift, bracing his core as he reached in front of him. The old lad in the cap, wolf whistled. Flickering brighter, Mike's machine announced the last bets for the race. Something changed in her voice the nearer she got to the off. Lighter she was, more flirtatious, as if she was in it with him. The jockey avatars flashed on screen in their silks. There was no logic to it, he knew, but he felt powerful as he scanned the colours. The blue and gold of Tipperary had been his downfall in the 515. There was no place for sentimentality in this lark. He studied the buttons on screen, flashing 10, flashing 50, flashing all in. His pot was shameful. 26 euro remaining from his afternoon's work. The pamphlets in the holder by the door warned about chasing the high. But Mike liked the shock of it both ways, up or down. A wave was a wave. He'd been on such a road earlier that the whole place had crowded around him. Who you picking, fella? Who's the trainer? Where's her mother? 3.50 he'd been up before the 5.15, and he should have gone then. He'd let all his new friends down in the end. Taking one last look at his options, Mike put his measly pot on the 40 to 1 outsider for the laugh. Farewell to these tiny fake horses and their toy jockeys. Go large and go home. As the timer hit zero, the girl's voice faded and he missed her for a second until the shot sounded and the miniature gate sprang back. The horses bolted off around a neon green track, the backdrop repeating every few lengths. Two old lads down below were shouting at their screens with violent enthusiasm. Mike couldn't remember his colours. He scanned the key code on the sidebar. You only live once. Black and red. Jesus. There she was, in second place, his little black and red beauty. His chest expanded, the skin stretching taut as his shoulders drew back. His whole body felt refreshed, 
His eyes didn't sting, his calf muscles no longer ached. Rising from the stool, he gripped the metal bar under the screen. As the seconds ticked down, he realised he was shifting feet. Dancing, almost, shouting his horse's name into the electric light of the room. The two old lads assembled behind him. Go on, the bastard and thing. Crack it, crack it, bring her home. The blood pinged around his body. He drummed the bar with his fingertips. He was getting excited over nothing. There was no way they let the machine ride in the long shots. There's no way, lads. There is, go on. Then they were in the home straight and in came the swoop of the wave. The lads rained claps on his shoulders. The stool rocked as if it might go from under him, leave him panned out on the grimy carpet. The black and red burst forward driving towards the line until it was near level with the leader, then a nose in front, and on, over the line. The screen vomited a rainbow of colour and a siren sounded. Through the cartoon fireworks and balloons, the gold letters flickered before his eyes. Arms swung around his neck, holding him, choking him. The musty wool of a coat, its sleeves scraping his jawline as he spun towards its embrace. When they broke apart, the man reached out and cupped Mike's chin, staring at him in wonder. You beat the books, young fella. When the lights started to flash, he thought the excitement was throwing shapes on his brain. But it was only the teenager at the counter, flicking the switch. Keep it down, lads, he said. The flat above goes spare, there's noise in the evening. He ran a hand through his lank hair and pointed at the ceiling. The old lads rounded on the assistant. He's after having a win, Wetcoat announced. A proper win, said Catman. Like my Punchestown princess. Good stuff, the assistant said. His dark blue tie hung short in the middle of his shirt. What do I do now, said Mike. Press the button and the machine tots it up for you, the assistant said. Takes a few minutes, then it goes on your card. It takes too long said Catman. Not like Punchestown. My princess. Tell him, said Wetco. Tell the lad. The assistant groaned and went back to his business. Go on, said Mike. Tell me. 18th of May, 1995. You never forget your first big win. Catman pulled the arm of Mike's hoodie. It was a raggedy Thursday, an old point-to-point that meant nothing to no one but I the measure of the ground, did my sums beforehand, knew the favourite wasn't good for it. He tapped his nose. You have to know where to look for value. Eight to one, Princess Mary, her fourth point-to-point, and twice she'd come nowhere. But I spotted she'd placed in her first race on soft ground, so I knew it. I swear to God, I knew it in my bones. £150 I put on her. For the win. Only. And she came flying in ahead of them all. It wasn't even a race. Wetcoat cheered. Form and breeding, said Catman. Understand those and you'll never go burst. Mike looked at the screen where his horse's name was still flashing forlornly into the room. Go and get your winnings, said Wetcoat. Stepping towards the machine, Mike pressed the button, leaving a greasy smear that shone brilliantly when the screen went black. They waited. Better not be broken, Wetcoat said over his shoulder. 
we'll have you in court. The pair of them leaned in close, the ghost of an aniseed lozenge on Catman's breath. The phone buzzed in Mike's pocket and suddenly he longed to be gone, to be out in the cold night air away from these strangers. The wave inside him rolled out to a frothy finish. A mad thought struck him that he might go now, without his winnings, leave the lads here to fight over them. He didn't know how to enjoy things. That was the problem. Lately, there was a hole inside him that everything fell into, good or bad. You couldn't call it depression. He saw proper depressed every day in work. The girl with the stress fractures. The man who'd done his knee the same week he buried his wife. Some days their pain just fled into him and he was no help to anyone. He'd press his big dumb hands into whatever muscle needed releasing, knowing full well that it would tighten again, that his job was actually about hope and if he couldn't give them that, he was bunched. Mike took his weight off the stool and straightened his legs. The screen came back to life. Congratulations, the voice said. You're a winner. The figure appeared and the men began pounding his back once more. Mike stared at the numbers with timid appreciation. 1,040 euro. Imagine what kind of an ape he'd have been to walk out and leave that sum of money behind. He'd love to buy Dee a bottle of champagne to celebrate. Maybe he could tell her he won it in a raffle. Maybe she'd believe him. Maybe they'd have the kind of drunk, frantic sex of their early days. He came back to the room as something poked his bicep. The assistant said, Are we all good, bud? Sorry, said Mike. The machine took ages to tally. The guy peered at the figure, blinked once or twice. Mike supposed he had seen bigger winds. Wetcoat shook his head. Would you not say, well done, the begrudgery of youth? Well done, the assistant said tonelessly. Super effort. He shifted his feet looked at the clock above the notice board. Clicking to add his winnings, Mike watched the money go on his card. The faster they paid out, the sooner they got it back. Stop, he told himself. No need to ruin it straight away. The key was to give the good time space to develop. Dee had thought him that, and they would eventually stretch out to an adequate amount of happiness. He wished he could talk to her like he used to. He wished she would notice. In the past, she'd always been able to tell. When he'd asked her to marry him, she hadn't said yes straight away, even though they'd been together for years. She'd wanted him to sort his head out, and he thought he had. The assistant started to line up the stools by the machines, a soft drag across the carpet. Mike logged out of his account. Is that you done for the night, lads? The assistant said. Will I shut down the computers? Keen to get home, said Wetcoat, to your bong and your virtual girlfriend, said Capman. The pair of them cracked up laughing, then began deliberations about one more race for the road. Taking his mobile from his pocket, Mike looked at the screensaver and felt as if he'd stolen someone else's phone or someone else's family. Years ago, when the twins were babies, it had been the same. The only thing he'd been good at was bathing them. He used to creep into the bathroom when the rest of the house was asleep, 
and sniff the bottle of baby shampoo until he cried. That feeling was back and he didn't know why. Last night he'd gone down to the kitchen for leftovers, the mean white light of the fridge and all the things inside just waiting in darkness. Open clothes, open clothes. He'd done it for so long he forgot he was hungry. The others were in a lively conversation when he looked up from his texts. The machines had gone blank and the room was darker now, the thin light of a bare bulb buzzing above their heads. It took Mike a few seconds to realise what was going on. Catman was telling his Punchestown story again, the details exactly the same as earlier, even the lilt in his voice when he said the horse's name. Mike was violently aware of every word, every pause, as the old man swallowed and smacked his lips. In the ordinary light, the door was further away than before. He desperately wanted to leave. It had been happening for months, his body wanting to be anywhere except where it was. And twice she'd come nowhere but, Catman was saying now. Mike looked slyly at the assistant, who for some reason had stopped his push to close. The lad's features softened as the story went on. The dark hoods of his eyes came down for a moment, as if he was deep in thought. Catman continued with his relentless narrative. Mike couldn't bear it for another second. He shook each of their hands one more time and made for the door. Outside in the cold, he couldn't shake off the old man's voice. Fixing the drawstring of his hoodie, he caught its reflection in the glassy green window, the weak chin barely distinguishable from his neck. He watched the drift of his breath in the night air as it went ahead of him down the town. The sky was black and low over the buildings, the top of the old clock tower tipping the darkness. He texted Dee to say he'd be back soon, slipped the phone in his pocket and crossed the road at the lights. Walking down Rat Mines, all he could see were the places that used to be there, the original cinema with the threadbare seats, the flat roof of the boxing gym, the nightclub where himself and Dee first met, across a near-empty dance floor of layabouts and drunks, of which he was one. In the dusty, cream light of the crowd dispersing, she'd taken hold of his elbow and told him to stand up straight, the heat of her and the sparkle as she'd necked his jack and coke, brazen, like she was doing him a favour. Later, they'd sat on the floor of a chipper in Portobello and shared a dinner box, and drunk and all as he was, he'd known full well that it was love. The long hours of the long day and evening came down on him all at once. He put his hand out for an approaching taxi, but the light went off. He stopped outside the little and rested for a second against the cold window. Across the way, the mint green dome of the church was lit up like a swimming pool at night. He was searching his phone for the taxi app when a barking noise jolted him upright. Turning, he half expected one of those vicious, squashed-faced dogs at the end of a leash. But it was a homeless girl in a duffel coat a few metres away, sitting on her haunches between the supermarket and an Indian. She coughed again, painfully. Her foot poked out from under her in a turquoise converse. A dark beanie was down over her brows. She looked at him and frowned, her sharp, ageless face suddenly alert to his presence.
you started to walk on. You have everything you need, she said, and it's not enough. He turned around. Sorry? There was a battered coffee cup suspended in the air between them now. Anything for a hostel, the girl said. I don't have enough. I, I... He patted his pockets uselessly. There's an ATM in this bar. Herbini nodded in the direction. Mike thought for a second. He could take it out in installments and she'd have the lot. A taxi went by with its light on and brought him to his senses. He took a tenor from his wallet, put it gently in her cup. And that was Sarah Gilmartin reading her story, Bring It Home, which was published in number 81, the winter 2020 issue of The Review. You've been listening to the Dublin Review podcast, presented and produced by Angela Flannery. This episode was recorded in May 2021 in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. The Dublin Review is supported by the Arts Council of Ireland and is published quarterly. For more information or to subscribe, go to thedublinreview.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Dublin Review.